Today marks the halfway point of New Reads November 2022, and I hope that you are having as much fun hearing about these new YA titles as I'm having reading and talking about them. On episode 219, my guests and I dig into Ophelia After All by Raquel Marie. Published in February of this year, Ophelia After All is the story of a teenager named Ophelia, who loves her rose garden, her friends, and all things romance. It's spring of senior year, and Ophelia couldn't be more excited for the prom, even if it means that her time in her comfort zone is coming to an end and that she will soon be forced to say goodbye to her nearest and dearest. Like so many of us, she finds change hard. And when she finds herself crushing on a girl on the fringes of her friend group named Talia, even her understanding of herself begins to change. Maybe she's not actually the sweet, boy-crazy girl that everyone around her seems so attached to. Ophelia, after all, is an exploration of identity and personal growth and what happens when we decide to own who we really are. Author Raquel Marie integrates all kinds of diversity and representation into the book, which is a total breath of fresh air. My guests and I speak broadly about all of these subjects and focus in a bit further on things like the difference between tokenism and real rep, the assumptions that parents make about their children, untangling who you are from who other people think you are, and intersectionality. We also swap some of our own prom and high school stories, and you'll hear some thoughtful perspective from the parent of a teenager in 2022. I know that today's guest has lots of fans in our SSR listener community, and I am so thrilled that she agreed to join me for this episode. Lissa K. Adams read her first romance novel in eighth grade after swiping one from her grandmother's bookshelf, and she was hooked forever. After a nearly 20-year career as a journalist, Her dreams of writing and publishing her own Happily Ever Afters came true in 2015 with the release of her first novel, Seventh Inning Heat, followed by the Rita-nominated novella, Wild in Rio. Today, she writes full-time from her home in Michigan with a pesky, fluffy canine assistant named Domino, who spends most of his days snoring under her desk. You probably know her best as the woman behind the Bromance Book Club series, which has received rave reviews from Entertainment Weekly, Publishers Weekly, and more. The latest series installment, A Very Merry Bromance, is now available. Follow Lissa on Twitter and Instagram at Lissa K. Adams. If you're new to the show, make sure you're following along with all things SSR on social media too. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you're interested in getting involved with a more active virtual book club, it's always a great time to jump into SWR, or Shit We Read. We are currently reading The Most Likely Club by Alyssa Friedland. Learn more and join us at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. When you join SWR as an SSR patron, you'll be supporting the podcast and getting a bunch of super cool exclusive rewards in return. Think rapid-fire Q&As with podcast guests like Lissa, monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, an invite to our Discord channel. It's all good stuff. I would love to see you there. If you are already supporting as a patron, I hope you know how much I appreciate you. You can also help the show grow with a five-star rating or review or by sharing a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. 
Libro.fm is the perfect place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Happy listening! Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Alyssa. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. We are talking about the third book in our New Reads November lineup this week, and it is Ophelia After All by Raquel Marie. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose this book to read for our episode today? Oh my gosh. Well, you gave me a, a list to choose from, and this one really stood out to me because I'm the mom of a teenage girl. And so just reading the back cover, you know, copy, the, or as we used to call the back cover copy, <laughs> now I think people just say blurb, that it, it just resonated with me about a girl on the, the, the verge of leaving high school and starting this new adventure, whatever comes after high school. And so I thought it would just resonate with me right now because of the age that my daughter's at. She's a junior in high school and, you know, she's kind of having some of the same thoughts and questions about what comes next. And, and that just resonated with me. Totally. So your daughter's a junior. In this book, our main character, Ophelia, and all of her friends, they are seniors. But before we talk about Ophelia, I would love to chat with you a little bit about your own experience as a senior in high school, just so that we can kind of situate ourselves in this world. Because this book is all about senior spring, which is like such a loaded, fascinating time. There's a heavy, heavy, heavy focus on the prom in this book. What do you remember about that time? Like, Ophelia is such a romantic. She has all of these ideas about what her prom should look like. Do you remember any of that from your own high school experience? I do. Yeah. My senior year, um, I, I loved my senior year of high school. I was very involved in, in lots of things in school, you know, student government, cheerleading and, and all kinds of activities. Um, I went to a very small high school in a very rural town. And so you knew everyone in your class very well. And so what I remember most was how different I felt from everyone else in my grade. Because, you know, a small town, uh, Michigan, in those days, I graduated, I'm totally dating myself here, 1992 is when I graduated from high school. I only had, I think, maybe out of 100 students in my grade, um, I think maybe 10 of us were going on to college at that time. And so I just remember feeling like an oddball because I couldn't wait to get out of this town. I couldn't wait to go on to an enormous college. I went to Michigan State, which at the time had 40,000 students. And I just could not wait to see something bigger and better. And I had, you know, for me, that senior spring was, let me just get through it. My senior prom, I, you know, we had fun. 
but I didn't care. <laughs> I just wanted to be done. Yeah. And I wanted to get out of that small town and, and see something bigger and better. I totally understand that. And thank you for sharing that with us. So I had kind of an opposite experience. I went to a huge high school. So I graduated with, I think like 800 people. Wow. So it was a massive high school. But like you, I was really involved um, and I couldn't wait to leave. Uh, Very suburban, not rural, although there were parts of my school, like we would get a lot of snow days just because there were parts of the district that were so rural that like you wouldn't be able to drive from them. So it kind of, it kind of blanketed lots of different communities because it was such a big school. But I remember finding that prom felt very romantic. And I think it was because, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, like I didn't date really in high school. Like I was, I was very shy about relationships and I was a late bloomer if we want to get really stereotypical about it. And so I think I felt like maybe the prom would be like the moment when all of my late blooming tendencies would maybe go to the side and I would like evolve into like this beautiful, gorgeous, hot woman that I wanted to be before I left for college. And I think I felt that way more so for junior prom. By senior prom, I was probably a little bit more antsy just to get out. And I remember my friend group being more in flux senior year, which is very similar to what happens in Ophelia after all. Whereas junior year, it was like, yes, we will all go as a group. And it's going to be the same group that we've been hanging out with since freshman year. But senior year, it was like a little bit different because we'd all kind of experimented a little bit with new friends. It was tricky, but I do I do resonate a little bit with that sense of romance that Ophelia and all of her friends really are assigning to the prom. Like I, I had moments when I was reading this book where I was like, guys, come on, it's just the prom. But then I really had to put myself back in, in my high school shoes and be like, no, but it's the prom. And when you're a teenager, it really is like the biggest thing that's ever happened to you. That is so true. And I, I'm seeing that, you know, in my daughter, she'll go to prom for the first time, you know, this year at the end of this year. And she and her friends are already talking about their dresses and what do they want to do? What do they want to go out to dinner before prom? And it, it really is, I think, just one of those milestones in our lives that we have attached so much importance to as a society. And, and sometimes it's a letdown, you know, you get there and you're like, oh, it's basically a school dance. We just all look really nice. (laughs) Yeah. My junior prom was like, it had some magic moments. The boy that I had a crush on who I thought was like so much cooler than me. Like we had a moment at the end. I I think I told the story before where like, I, I was on student government. And so I had to stay after and clean up. And I was, I remember I was like traipsing across the dance floor. Of course, my dress was way too long because I'd taken my shoes off and I had gone alone. And this guy who I had been in love with since freshman year, like, and he was so hot. He, he I think his date forgot something. And so he like had to, he walked in to the room and it was just the two of us in the room. And he was like, you look really pretty tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So that was my junior year experience. I also really loved my dress junior year. And so in a lot of ways, I think my junior year experience really lived up to my expectations. My senior year prom, um, my date left me at the prom. What? (laughs) I know. And yeah, so he like the, you know, there was like a school sanctioned after party or whatever. And we went to that because they were trying to get people not to drink. And I didn't drink at all in high school. And my date did. It was like he, you know, we were, he was like friend of a friend. And he left me at the school sanctioned after party because he wanted to go have like a better time probably drinking. And the irony of all of this is that my now husband, who I happened to go to high school with, though we didn't date, 
he always says like, well, I was going to ask you to the senior prom, but you already had a date, which is true, but he just waited too long. And then maybe I wouldn't have gotten left. <laughs> but I also think that if my husband and I had gone to the senior prom together, we would probably not be married now. That's hilarious. That's a fantastic story. I love that story. Feel free to borrow for future romance <laughs> books if you'd like. But yeah, Senior Prom did not live up to my expectations. And this book, really, Ophelia, after all, is about a group of teenagers that are playing with their own expectations, not only of prom, but of the rest of their lives. Yes. And we meet Ophelia, our main character, of course, and she is a romantic. I think I would almost say like a bit of a hopeless romantic. She has had a lot of crushes. I don't think we can call her like a serial monogamist because she's had one serious-ish relationship with a boy named Lucas, but I almost would call her like a serial monogamist crusher because she always has yes. these intense crushes. And she's really into gardening, which I thought was really cool. I've never read a character like that in the YA space she has three hours set aside every single Sunday to tend her roses, especially. And it was really interesting because like she has volunteered or sort of been voluntold to make all of the corsages and the boutonnieres for her friend group's prom experience, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. What did you think about Ophelia in general? Like did things about her resonate with you? Oh, so much. I, I loved, I just loved her as a character. Um, and I, just so appreciate that that she had this what was considered unusual hobby really the the gardening the tending of the roses and the growing i thought just from a, a thematic standpoint it was really touching that she could see all of these beautiful things blooming that she put her hands on that she made happen that she tended to every week but she herself has felt that she hasn't really bloomed yet mm. and that that she's starting to feel like she's the rose bush that that doesn't quite fit in there the the one that hasn't uh, she hasn't tended to it uh, enough so she's got this one side of her that's really confident that you know she's not embarrassed to have this this hobby that other pe even her friends are like i can't believe you spend this much time doing this yeah. you know? that so she's very confident and she defends that she loves doing this and that she wants to major in botany right and, yeah. and and even at one time has to defend her her decision to major in that so she's very confident on that one hand but then you see and this is what really resonated with me that there is sort of a void inside of her where she doesn't quite there are certain aspects of herself that she doesn't know yet and and there was one line in fact that i screenshotted if you'll bear with me for one second yeah. that i just thought was so so well written and so poignant a frustrated laugh escapes me. I really don't know my parents and they really don't know me. Mm. And I, I screenshotted that because I thought, I think everyone at that age has that realization. And it's really jarring to realize that I'm changing, they're changing. We think our parents are set in stone, that there's nothing about them that ever changes. And we think of ourselves at that age as this is who I am. And then you have a moment that makes you realize, wait a minute, you know, we're constantly moving and changing as people. And it can be very jarring, uh, especially if like Ophelia, she's not quite sure that she knows herself very well either. And, and she has to go on this journey to kind of figure out who that is. And I, yeah, that resonated with me, not just as someone who had been <laughs> a teenager who went through that, but also as the mom of a teenager who uh, you know, I can see her having some of those same 
you know, debates within herself. Who am I? What do I want to do? Where do I want to go in life? I think the other thing that we see with Ophelia, and I I don't know that this is true of all teenagers or all people, but I, I think it's something that a lot of people can resonate with. And maybe it's because Ophelia is somebody who wears her heart on her sleeve and is pretty expressive. She also happens to be somebody who people are like constantly mirroring to her who they think she is. And I think part of it is like she's an only child and she has a very close relationship with her parents. And I relate to that because while I do have half siblings and step siblings, I spent a lot of time when I was a teenager as an only child when I was living at my mom's house. And so I think as an only child, I sensed that there was this like more intense like observation on me from my mom. Um, And so she came to know me very well, or at least she came to think that she knew me very well in a lot of ways. And I think that's true. Like she did know me in a lot of ways, but because she didn't have other children to try to figure out, it was a lot of like, oh, like, let me, let me tell you all of the great things about you. This is how I see you. This is how I see you. And that is really good for your confidence, I think. And I credit that with some of my own like self-esteem as an adult, but it Mm -hmm. also, in my experience and (laughs) something I'm also working through as an adult is like untangling that from who you actually are inside And Ophelia's parents have a specific understanding of her as this good, obedient, polished, boy-crazy girl who also seems really comfortable with being biracial. Like, they are just proud of her. Um, And and you feel the sense of pride that they have in her, which it's such a mixed bag because, yeah, it feels so good to know that people are proud of you, but pride is a complicated thing to carry on your shoulders. It is. Yeah. And I think, again, another reason perhaps this book resonated with me is my daughter is an only child. We, we just have, you know, we have one, one daughter. We, we always laugh. And, and I know that this puts pressure on her. We say, hey, you know what? We achieved perfection. So we didn't <laughs> need to have any more kids. I have had to check myself in the past, you know, I guess couple of years, past year mostly, to not be putting that pressure on her, to not be defining her exclusively as the way I see her and to recognize that she has an entire internal life that I don't know about, that I will never know about. And that's hard as a parent to acknowledge and accept that they're, your, your kids are never going to tell you everything. They're never going to, there are certain things that they're just never going to want to talk to you about and never want to express to you, at, at least at this age. And so trying to balance that, I think this is a good book for parents of teenage girls to read because it does delve so much into that internal life that we don't see in our own kids. Obviously, we, we, we don't get insight into that. And <laughs> there are times when our, you know, I think as we see with Ophelia that she feels very, at times, hamstrung by her, her parents' pride. You know, there's the one incident, again, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but there's an incident that occurs. Her mom's a professor and there are some students at this party that she's at. And what Ophelia does and says, her action at that party throws her mom for such a loop. And her mom just can't understand why would you, what happened? Why did you do that? And it's that moment when they both come to realize we are not the people we've assumed ourselves to be, you know, and that we've assumed the other to be. And that's, that's a a big turning point in the life between, you know, the relationship between a parent and a child, and everyone has to go through it. And it's hard. 
but it's part of the growth. It's part of, it's part of life. The way I sort of have looked at my daughter's next couple of years of school, you know, before she graduates is there's going to be a natural conflict between both of us wanting to hang on to her childhood. And yet we also have to start clipping a few of those mm. apron strings, right? That there, that there are a certain number of, of strings that tether us together as parent and child. And at some point you do have to start cutting some of them. And I think it's a, I think there's a lot of battle that goes on, maybe particularly for, for, for people who are only children, they don't want to start cutting those yet, but they do. And they're afraid that if they start cutting some of those strings, they're going to upset their parents. It's a, it's an internal battle that, that I think all, all parents and teenagers have to go through. And the same thing is sort of happening with Ophelia's friend group, I think, because they do have this big friend group. They've known each other for a long time, or at least the core of the group has known each other for a long time. Her best friend, Sammy, is her literal next door neighbor. So they go way back. She has this other friend named Agatha, and then through Agatha, she inherited Lindsay, who she has a little bit more of a complicated relationship with, and then Wesley has come into the group. Like, there's sort of all of these new people have come in to the fold over the last few years, but I think when you when you grow up with people that way, it's really easy to kind of, like, fall into different identities, and identity is such a theme of this book in all kinds yes. of ways. But I think within that sort of a friend group, it's like, oh, Agatha's the fashion one. Like, Sammy's the funny one. Lindsay's the popular one. And Ophelia is like, oh, the classic romantic. And so everybody's very quick to sort of categorize her and her actions um, without thinking about the fact that she could be evolving or changing. And maybe she doesn't want to be viewed as a senior in high school the same way she was viewed as a freshman, sophomore, or junior in high school. And so those dynamics are a little bit different, obviously, with her friends than with her parents, but there are some similarities there too. Yeah, it, it, and I, I think the author does a really great job of sort of weaving those parallels without hitting you over the head with it, that, that, that this time in a person's life is all about redefining who you are. And sometimes that includes the relationships, you know, in your life. And and that is one of the scariest parts is, uh, you know, coming to the realization that these people you've been friends with, maybe since kindergarten, you know, all your life, that probably starting next year, you guys aren't going to be that close anymore. You're, you know, that sometimes the friends we make in college are the ones that become the deepest relationship or friendships of our lives. And, and that's a scary thought to Ophelia. She has that sudden realization that you know, yeah, I'm probably not going to be friends with some of these people. We're not going to be that close anymore. And what a scary thought that is. It's such a jarring change yeah. to imagine. But again, just a, one of those milestones we can all relate to who've been through it, right? You know, that, that's um, how jarring that is. Yeah, because when you're in high school, like you can't, or at least when I was in high school, I won't generalize this or project, but I remember thinking that when I was in high school, like there was no way that I could sort of exist outside of the context of my friend group. And and I was lucky to graduate high school in a time when at least we had AOL Instant Messenger or like iChat. <laughs> and so even though we weren't going to be talking all the time or seeing each other all the time, it was the beginning of that kind of communication when I felt like we would be able to stay very involved with each other's lives on a regular basis. And that hasn't happened. You know, I graduated high school 
14 years ago. And I'm lucky if I get to reconnect with people from high school a couple of times a year outside of my husband, who was not my friend in high school. So I have sort of an interesting relationship with that because of, of that interesting like cycle that's happened with him. But yeah, it's a strange thing, like as an adult to read a book like this and to understand like with the wisdom of those other years, what's actually going to happen. I do want to talk a little bit more about Ophelia's friend group and specifically the representation that we see in Ophelia's friend group. I read an interview with the author on the We Need Diverse Books website on their blog. I will make sure to link that in the show notes for this episode. But she was asked about the friend group and about the fact that she has included not only racial diversity, but also diversity in terms of sexuality and gender identity and it really is like a picture of every kind of teen that you might want to see represented on the page. And when she was asked about this, Raquel Marie said, when I picture a group of friends, I picture it being comprised of people from an assortment of various backgrounds. So the diversity in Ophelia's friend group came organically when I was initially drafting. However, it was vital to me that I worked with sensitivity readers and talked closely with friends who shared aspects of certain characters' identities throughout the process of working on this book to be sure I wouldn't do harm. I feel strongly about representing diverse casts of characters in my books because it's a reflection of how I see the world, but that should never come at the expense of poor representation. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so glad that she addressed that because I'm sure she's been asked about it many times. I, I'm sure that there's like a concern in this kind of friend group where you have one character who's half Pakistani, you have one character who's half Cuban, you have asexual characters, you have aromantic characters, you have bisexual characters, pansexual characters. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that she was concerned that people would suggest that there was some tokenization happening. And it looks like she really did her homework, which is so important. And that creates this very well-rounded picture of a high school community in 2022. I love that. I, I loved how the depth of, of each of these characters um, that there was nobody there to just serve a plot point. And I, I think sometimes we, we do run the risk as, of authors of not creating a, a broad enough uh, and a deep enough secondary character. You know, I think sometimes we see not in basically all genres, these sort of stereotypical sidekick character, you know, the sassy teenage girl, the, the dumb jock, you know, that we, we, and, and so what I think one of the things I appreciate about the cast of characters in um, Ophelia is that they all all had strong motivations and backstories and they all played a role not just in moving Ophelia forward but in representing the breadth of the experience of the American teenager today that and so I I, I hope no one's ever accused her of, of tokenism um, because the, the the depth of these characters was one of the things that I, I absolutely adored. And there's one conversation in particular um, in which one character reveals to Ophelia that he is asexual. And I thought that that, that conversation was handled so well. It sounded like teenagers talking. It sounded like the authenticity of it, I thought, was, was beautifully done. And you know, the idea that someone might accuse the author of tokenism, well, but there's an importance in that, not just because it helps Ophelia eventually start to put the pieces of her own identity together, but also because this character represents 
very real people in our lives. I mean, that, 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 you know, you can read this book and appreciate that character's story just as much as Ophelia's. And I think that's the difference between tokenism and actual representation. Mm -hmm. You know, does that person's identity matter above and beyond how it affects the main character? Mm -hmm. And if you can't, if you can't say, well, this character exists and their and and their identity exists on the page their representation exists simply to move our main character forward you have to make sure that every character is real i loved the secondary characters too did you have a favorite i think probably sammy yeah. I, just because they have such a complicated relationship that um again not to bring everything back to what i'm witnessing with my daughter but you know she has um you know a friend that she's i mean since literally since they were four years old, you know, and they are like siblings, those two. Yeah. And that's what I kind of got a sibling dynamic out of Ophelia and Sammy because they'd known each other for so long, had been best friends for so long. And, you know, there's that big moment of conflict between them that sort of sets off a chain reaction of things, you know, and I just, I felt for both of them so much because this wasn't just a friend argument. These are people who you know, they've grown up together and are finding things out about each other in a very unfortunate way and um, in a very heated way. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely say Sammy. I liked Sammy too. And, and Ophelia's relationship with Sammy reminded me a lot of one of my own high school relationships. My best friend in high school happened to be a guy and mm -hmm. it was mostly always very platonic between us. There are a couple of moments where I think we were both like, hmm, could this be more? But it never, it never became more. <laughs> we, when we fought, it was so ugly because we loved each other so deeply, so much. We knew each other so well. And the things that we would get angry with each other about as teenagers, I mean, I look back and it is, it's ridiculous. Like the things that we used to fight about. And, and I was so dramatic with my feelings for and about him because I just loved him so much. And I was fiercely protective of him when he dated and, you know, we were involved in a lot of the same things. So we were stepping on each other's toes a lot. So it just, it was like the most, like it was the most passionate kind of relationship that I think you can have outside of like a sexual romantic relationship. We still just had this passion, like we fought hard and we loved each other so hard. And so I like to see that on the page. I think my favorite secondary character was Agatha, mm. who is Ophelia's kind of like core best gal pal. She's only friends with Lindsay because Agatha was friends with Lindsay. Lindsay's sort of like a, a have to sort of friend. Right. Um, but I, I really think that Agatha represented some interesting nuances of teenage life. She wants to be a fashion designer. She is so cool and creative and artistic. She's going to design school we find out that she has designed a line of plus size fashions and she has a couple mm -hmm. of moments of insecurity that she confides to Ophelia where she's like, I don't know, I'm going to the school where probably everybody is a great designer. And Ophelia gives her some tough love and she's like, has everybody else designed plus size fashions? Like, she's like, look at you, you're so cool. And, and I am just glad to see Agatha represented because Yes, have I read characters before who are fashionistas and who are going to go on and take over the world in New York and like go to Pratt? Sure. They all were in very small bodies. And I don't think I've ever read a character 
who represented both of those identities, like both being really Mm -hmm. creative and into fashion and being in a bigger body and owning it. Like that was not part of, I get the story that she was insecure about her body. And we need to see that kind of representation just as much as these other kinds of representation. It wasn't core to her description like at no point did the author say like yes and and luckily we don't see this kind of exposition as much anymore but there was no point where like it was like yes Agatha wasn't a bigger body than her friends it just came up in the context of her fashion resume and what she wanted to accomplish once she became a designer so it just was really cool to see those kinds of things colliding in one character and I just like wanted to see the outfits that she put together because they sounded really cool. Same. I wish that there had been some some pictures to go along with it because I actually was really curious what she was, you know, what those looked like. She she sounded so incredibly creative. And yeah, to sort of echo what you just said, it was again talk about representation. On, on the one hand, you know, she she does a great job of balancing that this person is this creative and and fun, and she's been friends with you know she means so much to Ophelia. But again, she has her own life as well. You know, she's going to go on and do these very cool things. And I love the sort of pep talk that Ophelia gives her in that moment that, hey, look at you, look at what you're doing here. And that her identity is not about the any insecurity about the fact that she exists in a bigger body, but that it also, however, is not treated as if it isn't part of who she is. And I think that that's a fine line that we, that we, you know, that authors don't always balance well that you acknowledge you don't want to just erase the fact that existing in a bigger body is part of your identity just as much as someone who exists in a smaller body is part of their identity too our appearance is part of our identity but to only present that part of our identity as she has insecurities about it you know it's refreshing to see a character who there's no erasure of that fact. There's no, there, no one ever says, your weight doesn't define you. Well, the reality is, of course, it's part of what defines us. I mean, our appearance is part of what defines us, but it's treated in such a way in that it's not defining her in a negative way or it's not leading to some kind of insecurities, except when she's like, oh my God, all these other kids are so talented too. Like her insecurity there is about the idea that all these other kids in her design school are going to be just as talented as she is. And what am I bringing to the table? And that's when Ophelia says, um, hello, you've designed a line of plus size clothing. Is anyone else going to be able to do say that? No. So her insecurity is not about her body. Mm -hmm. Her insecurity is about what all of us in the creative fields have insecurity about is there's so much better than me to be so many more talented students there. And um, it's it just, yeah, again, I think every character in this book is someone I would love to read more about. And I think that that is the, the standard of, is it a good cast? Because I would, oh my gosh, I would love to read Agatha's story. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the Love, Simon universe, um, where there was a book about Simon and then Leah on the offbeat. Like, I wonder if that's in the cards for this cast, because oh, I, hope I hope so, so too. And I would love to see this adapted on screen and and sort of I think the test for like, at least for me, if a character, a secondary character in particular is fully nuanced is like Agatha would not be portrayed on screen as that stereotypical like fat, funny friend. Thank goodness. 
Like she would be cool and hot and interesting and sparkly. Mm -hmm. And she would have the same concerns as anybody who was in a different body. And that I think shows that we're progressing in our pop culture. I hope so. A lot of this book is about Ophelia's ongoing understanding of her sexuality and who she's attracted to. And Mm -hmm. as we broach this part of the conversation, I want to acknowledge, as I often do on this podcast, when these conversations begin, that I am a cis het woman. And so a lot of my experience with this book was one of having open eyes, open ears, and learning and, and hearing a perspective about how a teenager like Ophelia might experience all of this. And The cool thing about New Reads November is that I have access to so many great resources and so many cool, funky blogger reviews and lots of awesome interviews with the authors of these books. And so I did find a little bit from the author Raquel Marie about about kind of like where this book started for her. She said again in that same interview with We Need Diverse Books, Ophelia's experience of questioning her sexuality as a teenager was actually heavily shaped by my own queer journey. And she goes on to explain that at the beginning of her senior year, she actually wrote down on a slip of paper that she wasn't straight. And then she tucked it away and said that she would forget about it. And that would mean that she actually was straight. Like she just kind of wanted to forget about it. And she jokes like, spoiler alert, I didn't forget. And just a few years after that, when she was only 19 years old, she started writing Ophelia after all, because quote, I wanted to explore all the feelings I'd been suppressing about my sexuality. So this is really a labor of love for her and um, a personal story and a personal venture. And Ophelia is a lot of the author, um, which I thought was special. And I wanted to make sure I shared that. So yeah, we meet Ophelia at the beginning and she is portrayed both by herself and by others as like boy crazy. She has all these crushes. She was just dating this guy named Lucas and he broke her heart, but she still kind of wishes that they could go to the prom together and have that idealized prom moment that she had always wanted. Talia throws off everything. And Talia is sort of peripheral in the friend group. She's connected to Ophelia's friends through Lindsay. And Lindsay is sort of playing Sammy and this other guy, Wes, against each other as potential prom dates. Wes has another friend group, uh, Zach and Talia. And so they all sort of like begin hanging out senior year. And that was sort of how my senior year went as well. Like we were picking up all of these other little groups and all joining together. And Ophelia at one point at a party notices in like a game of never have I ever or some version of that that Talia admits that she had once kissed a girl and liked it and Ophelia recognizes that she had like a feeling in her stomach about that and so ever since that moment she's been paying a little extra attention to Talia and I liked to see how their relationship developed throughout the book it was so cool to me that Ophelia was putting herself out there with Talia. Like there were moments when she needed a ride because Ophelia doesn't drive. And so Ophelia just texts Talia and is like, hey, like, can I get a ride? Or like, do you want to hang out? And even outside of the romantic aspect, I just, that's something that I struggle to do even as an adult to put myself out there with somebody new. And I just love that she did that and that she gave herself the space to explore what that friendship might look like. Yeah, I love that too. And I think that's one of the, the most important parts about this this book is that it presented that exploration as something very positive, very natural. And Ophelia's own acceptance of that exploration, I think is one of the things that's so important here. Because I think for far too long, 
pop culture has presented the notion of when young people begin to, to seek out their identity, their sexual identity, that it has been presented as, as if they don't want to at first. They're denying it at first. They're scared of it. And, and, and Ophelia does have questions in her mind, like, whoa, what's going on here? Why can I not forget about this girl, why? Why am I? Why do I keep looking for her? Why? Do, why do my hands get sweaty when I see her? You know, like so. She has these questions going on, but it's never presented in a way as, oh, please just go away. Please let me stop thinking about this girl. Please just let it let it not be. You know, there's never that or her own acceptance of her need and desire to explore that part of her. I think is done so well, and is so positive and so authentic. And so to hear now the story that the author tells about her, you know, about her own journey, it makes sense about how how authentic that feels. And and yet I think another important part of this though is that I think there are a lot of grown-ups, a lot of adults who would assume that this is a book for teens who might be questioning and and seeking out their identities. I don't care who you are you're going to feel the pit that little tightness in your stomach that that ophelia feels when she gets that text back from talia you know it it's done in such a way that i think you don't have to be exactly like ophelia you don't have to be a teenager anyone's going to read this book and remember what that those feelings of a crush feel like and you're gonna you're gonna get those back and i i love how authentic that felt that this was a teen girl who's recognizing that she has a crush on someone she doesn't normally have a crush on. (laughs) (laughs) And she's going to explore it. She's not afraid to explore it. And, and I just, I love it. I, it's done so well. And I felt every single emotion that Ophelia felt every step of that way. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I actually just had somewhat, I think of an epiphany while you were talking, which is that in books written in decades gone by that feature queer rep, even if in the end we have characters who are accepted or accepting of what they have realized about themselves. I think so much of the plot is driven by torment of the variety where the character is leaning away and pulling away from their feelings. Their torment about whether they are gay, asexual, bisexual, that is the core conflict of the story. And it's about leaning out of that feeling. In this book, the conflict, to the extent that the conflict is even wrapped up Mm -hmm. in Ophelia's feelings about whether or not she's a lesbian or bisexual or wherever she someday lands, if she decides to land somewhere, like the conflict is actually about her leaning into it. Exactly. Yes. Perfect way to describe it. Because she's like, oh, like this, this is what I'm interested in. Like, I am interested in exploring this. I am interested in Talia. And that doesn't mean that I'm maybe not interested in Lucas as well, but like, I'm not going to pull away from it. So the conflict then becomes about like, how do I figure this out more rather than less? And how do I then communicate about that to the people who I love? And how do I build a support system around me that supports who I am on an ongoing basis and not just who I was Mm -hmm. before I had this big moment with Talia. You know, I think another important part of that journey is that there's one part where she has a realization. I should have screenshotted it so I could read it exactly, but it was the way she put it was that 
she has a moment where she realizes I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my yeah. life. I'm going to have to be revealing this to people for the rest of my mm -hmm. life. And she has sort of a moment of grief about that where, oh my gosh, but it's almost like, oh my God, what a pain in the butt that I'm going yeah. to have to keep doing this. But there's no doubt in her mind that, okay, so this is what I may have to do this for people, you know, be telling people this for the rest of my life. Okay. And her conflict about coming to this realization about herself, about telling her parents is there's never a moment where she's afraid that they won't accept this part of her. Her fear is simply that, well, they've always known me as something else. They've always known me as my sweet boy, crazy Ophelia is what her, that's what her mother says repeatedly, you know, and it's just scary to Ophelia to have one more part of her identity that's going to be changing in her parents' eyes at a time when so much of her identity is already changing because it's just that it's a, it's a time of natural change in your life and in your relationship with your parents. And so it's never treated as, oh my God, every single thing in the world is gonna change now and it's never gonna be the same with my parents. It's just treated as, well, I guess I better tell them that, the, yeah. <laughs> that sweet boy crazy Ophelia is also maybe a little girl crazy here too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And even as she is embracing that and communicating this with her parents, like I love a flawed parent in a YA book. I think it's amazing. And even though her parents seem pretty cool generally and they have a great relationship with Ophelia, her mom has some questions. And, and at the end of this conversation, she says, I won't lie, I don't understand it all. This stuff about your sexuality, but I'm willing to be the student for once. And I just wanted to give her mom a round of yes. applause because it's it's the realization that like adults don't know everything. Even her mom, who is a professor and is generally the expert about everything in their house, like she doesn't know. And she's not going to pretend that mm -hmm. she gets it 100%. She might even have some of her own internalized homophobia that she's going to have to work through no matter how much she loves her daughter. Absolutely. And she's going to be honest about that. Like, I'm so happy that in 2022, we're moving to a place where hopefully more and more teens especially will feel comfortable like sharing that part of themselves with their parents mm -hmm. but we also can't we can't pretend that like there aren't these generational gaps and that absolutely every parent of a pre of a previous generation is going to be like yes I 100% understand this like I wish that it could be like that for everybody but I think for us to present that story to teens who might also be questioning like that sets them up for an unrealistic journey. And so I just think mm -hmm. this book must serve as such a lovely resource for teens who are looking for advice or guidance or a bit of a roadmap on their own journey. And it does that without being moralistic in any way. It doesn't feel like a manual. It's just like, here's a couple of things that might happen. There are no real rules. Nobody's going to be 100% for you. Nobody's going to be 100% against you. Everybody's going to have questions. You're going to have questions and we're all going to figure it out together. And I personally believe that if we came at most problems and differences in our world with an attitude of like, let's figure it out together, we would be a lot better off. Right. And the same token, I think it's a great resource for parents mm. too, because parents can, can think, oh my gosh, it would totally not change anything yeah. between my child and me if they were to come out as anything other than heterosexual. And yet I think it's okay for parents to recognize you might have a jolt of, whoa, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's okay. Like, that doesn't make you a bad person to suddenly be like, okay, this is not what I thought I knew about my child. 
And it would be very jarring as a parent. And, and I think you would go through a process where you'd say, oh my gosh, what have I said and done over the years that may have sent them the message that they couldn't come out to me sooner? Or yeah. how have I been identifying my child in a way that may maybe have made it hard for them to think I would be accepting of, of who they are? And again, you can exist in a family in which you march in pride parades together and still have a reaction that is, oh, that's not what I thought I knew about you. Okay, let's adjust and I might have some questions for you. And I think that parents need to be open to asking those questions. Even if they seem like dumb questions, be okay saying, wow, have I ever said or done anything to you that made you ever think that you couldn't have told me this sooner? Or maybe you didn't know until sooner. Maybe I've said and done something that made it impossible for you to even explore this part of your identity. You know, what, what do I need to change in the way I talk to you, in the way that I define you that would make this that I might need to apologize for or adjust. So I do think it would be important for parents to read this book too, because we don't always, don't always know the ways in which we are defining our children, are penning in, them in, fencing them in. And I, even when we think that we're defining them in a very positive way, mm-hmm. there are things that maybe we say that get stuck in their heads on repeat, even if they're positive, like, Ophelia's mom calls her my sweet boy, crazy Ophelia. So that's how Ophelia thinks her mom defines her. And how is it going to be different if she does have to say to her mom, hey, it's not just boy crazy. I'm a, I'm a hopeless romantic for anyone, you know, because her mom had always defined her that way. It made her a little nervous about, okay, how do I, how do I tell my mom this? You know, so I think parents should read this too. There are two other sort of elements that I think I would be remiss not to mention, the first of which is the book's emphasis on intersectional identity and the ways in which somebody's race or family background might further complicate or add other layers to someone's sexual identity, sexual interests. At one point, um, Ophelia is having a conversation with Talia, who is half Black, half Latinx, and there's one half of her family that is much more accepting of her sexual identity than others. Um, Ophelia specifically identifies herself as half Latinx and half white, and she's aware that that might sort of impact her families in different ways because her families bring different history with different things to that experience. Wes, who is asexual, is Asian American, and Ophelia is aware that his experience is different. So again, I think just like reminding us that there are so many different iterations of each experience and we have to acknowledge that. Right. Also, I love that there was really no firm label that Ophelia lands on at the end of the book. Like, right. And I think somebody prompts her with that at some point. And she's like, I don't know. Like, I might never know if I have a label. Wes explicitly says that to her when he takes her to this resource center. And I, I would imagine, again, like I am a cis het white woman, so I have not had this in my own life personally, but I would imagine that there's maybe like a lot of pressure when you are questioning yourself to be like, I am a lesbian or I am bisexual or I am pansexual. And Ophelia like feels that for a minute, but at the end of the book, like we as readers don't necessarily like know how she's going to identify going forward and we don't need to know and quite frankly like we're not entitled to that information 
whether it's a fictional character or somebody in the real world. Like we just know that she's into Talia. She was into Lucas in the past. And that's kind of where she is. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I appreciate you bringing that up. And again, just to, you know, I, I also am a cishet woman. Um, and so none of this has been my experience either. But what I definitely appreciated about how the book ends and how Ophelia hasn't assigned a label to herself. Is I think that that's a, a very important conversation for us to be having right now. Again, I'm older than dirt, it seems like, compared to most people um, in publishing these days. And nobody, there was nobody in my high school who was openly gay, openly non-straight in any way whatsoever. Um, in my daughter's class, she had kids who were openly gay in sixth grade. And so it, we have made so much progress in that sense, in people, in being comfortable, being who they really are. But one area where I feel like older generations still have a lot of work to do is that we are the ones who want to assign that label. We are the ones who want to say, oh, wait, I, she's bisexual. I thought she was, mm -hmm. I thought she came out as gay in sixth grade, but she's actually, she's actually dating a boy now. Mm -hmm. So we are the ones who feel this need to put a label on everything. And it might take someone well into adulthood to finally even figure out, no, no, this is, this is who I am. And so this idea of putting a label on someone where they fall on the, the, you know, the spectrum of sexuality, we, we, need, we do need to get a little bit better about that, to, to not inadvertently put pressure on young people who are still figuring it out on their own to assign some kind of label to themselves. Um, so I really appreciated that about the ending of this book so much. On the whole, Alyssa, how does Ophelia, after all, compare to the books that you read when you were a teenager? And what do you think that tells us about the direction of publishing and pop culture overall? Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, the books that were available in, you know, aside from some of the classics, you know, I mean, uh, Judy Bloom certainly wrote some some stuff that was considered quite scandalous for, you know, a, a while. But there was nothing like this, nothing like this when I was growing up. There were no books that explored any kind of identity outside of white cishet existence. My earliest, for example, some of my, the, the books that I binged first was a series of, actually they're on my shelf right back over here. Um, I just collected this, this series of books put out by Scholastic called Sunfire Romances. Mm. I love them. They, each book featured a different era in American history and, you know, featured a, a female main character. And I loved seeing these historical time periods through the lens of a girl, a teen girl, because, you know, everything that I, we were taught in history was from the perspective of white men, yeah. right? Old white men. And so to, to see, and so I love that aspect of it. In the entirety of the series, they put out 26 books. There were only two that featured, might be three, but at the most three that featured non-white, non-Christian girls. And of course they were all heterosexual. So I would love to see, for example, Scholastic to redo that series today and really give us the full depth and breadth of the 
American experience, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and recognize, you know, give, give me the story, um, show me everyone in America, you know? And so to, to an long-winded way of answering your question that a book like this did not exist when I was young. I don't, I can't think of anything that I read that handled the topic of sexuality from anything except the heterosexual perspective. And if it did, it was probably treated pretty scandalously. I can think of one series of books that I read. I was such a history nerd, so I read nothing but historical fiction for a long time. That The villain of this series um, was a gay man. It was set during the Civil War. And the way they treated his gayness was as if it was perverted. And that this was part of what made him a villain. And... I mean, it was just disgusting, you know, the way that it was treated is that that was part of what made him bad, right? Not the fact, it wasn't enough just that he was a horrible human being who killed people, right? Oh, no, no, let's also make him gay about that, you know? So the idea that kids today growing up have books like Ophelia, after all, it it is such a, a welcome and necessary change. And I'm can't wait to hand this book off to my daughter now to read. Oh, good. Well, I'll be anxious to hear what she thinks about it. I hope she loves it as yes. much as we did. I hope so. Other than Ophelia, after all, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I have to put a plug in for um, a book that comes out today. We're recording this on November, what, what day? October 11th yes. when we're recording this. It's called Mistakes Were Made by Meryl Wilsner. Um, in fact, tonight I will be going to um, a bookstore in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're both from Michigan, and I will be helping Meryl launch this book into the world. Exciting. So um, I hope everyone gets a chance to read it because Meryl is such a wonderful writer and so darn funny. Oh, my gosh. The, the situations that they put their characters in. Oh my gosh, it's not cringy, but it's almost like, I mean, you, you're like, oh my gosh, Meryl, what are you doing to these poor people? <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes, Mistakes Were Made by Meryl Wilsner. Please, everyone buy it. Um, they are the most amazing writer. Uh, another book series that I'm reading right now by Tamara Lush. If you happen to like uh, cozy mysteries that are super funny and a little bit of reverence. Tamara has a new uh, a series about, they all have a, a coffee puns in the name. <laughs> um, so I love, I do love cozy mysteries and I am always, always eagerly awaiting the next Laura Griffin, which is, she um, writes romantic suspense. Mm. And so, yeah, I would say those, um, There's one that's going to be coming out soon from Laura. So that'll probably be the next thing I read. Okay. Well, thank you. I will include links to those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. And we have to talk about your work too, because it has just (laughs) been, oh, (laughs) I mean, now you're just being modest because the Bromance Book Club series, I feel like has just like broken bookstagram a little bit in the best possible way. (laughs) And so I want to congratulate you on that because it's been so fun to see your books popping up all over the place. And I'm curious if there's anything that you're working on or anything that you have coming up or anything that's already out there that you just want to share and plug with us. Well, of course, November 1st, the next installment releases of the bromance, uh, A Very Merry Bromance. Um, It's Colton's story. He's the country star that we met in uh, book three. Um, He's uh, 
introduced um, mainly through Noah. And he, uh, Colton's love interest is Gretchen, who is introduced in book two as the woman who dumps Mac on the sidewalk. <laughs> Oh my gosh, what a web, what a web they've woven. Yes, I know. And so putting those two together was actually so fun. And I knew the minute I wrote Gretchen in the second book in Undercover Bromance that she was going to have to get her own story someday. I'm like, I just love this woman. So that comes out um, November 1st, A Very Merry Bromance. I, I call it sort of the Bromance Book Club meets a Christmas Carol. Well, and we love seasonal reading. It's like time to kick off your cozy seasonal reading. So everybody mm -hmm. go get a copy. But I, what my current work in progress that I am madly finishing up is, um, so in the first romance book, the Romance Book Club, the book that Gavin reads is called Courting the Countess. Yeah. And I am writing Courting the Countess. You so I'm actually turning it into a real book. So yeah, That's amazing. And it'll be out in um, just over a year. Okay. Well, everybody be on the lookout for that. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. And I'm Thank sure for that me. we as a community will continue to cheer on and champion all your work. Uh, we have a lot of fans of, of your series. And so, uh, yeah, you keep writing and we'll keep reading. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>